Support for Essential Tremors comes from the Big Ears Festival, celebrating 10 years with Los Lobos, Bill Frizzell, Edgar Meyer, and John Zorn. March 30th through April 2nd in Knoxville. BigEarsFestival.org. This episode is brought to you by Atomic Books. Atomic is an independent bookstore full of objects made of paper, vinyl, plastic, and various other actual materials at the edge of time. Specializing in literary comics, small press, art books, and great regional beer at 8 Bar in the back of the store. Come to 3620 Falls Road in Hamden or go to AtomicBooks.com. Atomic Books, literary finds for mutated minds. I never have talked about this in any interview or anything. It's like this this whole thing is super personal. Um, and I never wanted, I never spoke about this in an interview because I never wanted it to be part of my narrative of Western composer goes to India and <laughs> this whole thing because it's it was such a profound and personal and enlightening experience that it it could just be a secret. It could just be my my world and that's what this piece is. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives or their lives in general. Often performing on pipe organ, Callie Malone creates haunting, austere music that simultaneously evokes the sacred tradition implied by the instrument, while also removing the more ostentatious elements of it. Modifying it so as to remove any indication of the instrument's traditional context in Christian church services, Malone's slow, patient meditations nevertheless still succeed in evoking something holy. Although departing slightly from this instrumentation on her newest release, The Living Torch, the same stillness and reverence is powerfully evoked. The first music Malone chose as being formative for her was the album Loveless by My Bloody Valentine.
So, I'm gonna take you back to 16 years old. <laughs> Maybe even a little bit earlier. Um, surprise, surprise, my bloody Valentine, Loveless, the entire record um, was so important to me. I think, I mean, and it still is, I think I've been listening to that record on repeat for years. And actually before getting into my bloody Valentine, when I was maybe 13 or 14, I would go to some noise shows in Denver at a venue called Rhinoceropolis. And there was a woman who I looked up to a lot who did these tabletop power electronic sets. And her uh, artist name was Kevin Shields. And <laughs> I had no idea who my bloody Valentine was at that at that time, though, so I was just like, "Wow, that's a it's an interesting name to <laughs> to pick for yourself." And then several years later, when um, a friend of mine played "Loveless" for me, it, it all it all just made so much sense, and it was it was really just such a beautiful meeting of incredible harmony and and chaos and timbre and and um, just. It it almost sounds like synthesizers or synthesis and and this just massive wall of sound that I hadn't really heard anything like before being so beautiful at the same time as violent and chaotic and like smeared and stretched. I loved how how psychedelic the counterpoint is as well. Um, with the different voicings of the guitar, like sometimes there's they act as palindromes, the two guitars, one is sliding up, one is sliding down. And I just remembered being in complete awe of the songwriting, but also of the just of the sound quality of the instruments and wanting to try to make my guitar sound like that, running, try, trying to make my synth sound like that. And um they, yeah, they also paved a way for me to get into open tunings as well, which um, was huge for me. Uh, from there, I think I started listening to a lot of John Fay and uh, Appalachian folk music that used a lot of open tunings as well and getting into just creating my own my own tunings. Well, so you're, you're coming at this from a really interesting place because a lot of times when someone who's a teenager is hearing something like my bloody Valentine, they're, they're coming at that from hearing stuff that's much more kind of conventional rock music, pop music. But if you're hearing that and going to power electronics shows, you're, that's almost as amazing as it is. It's more conventional. Right. right. Yeah. You're, you're coming at it from a different direction. So yeah. Yeah, it was almost more conventional, and that's why I liked it, because I had been, like, I grew up going to hardcore shows, going to noise shows, ambient shows. Denver had such a wonderful underground music um, scene in all these, you know, uh, all-ages venues. So I was like a little kid <laughs> getting so much extreme music at an early age, and then when I finally heard my bloody Valentine because Denver's also an island. You know, it's so far away from every other city, and it's like I just listened to tons of local bands and, and local musicians, and those were kind of my my um, framework for a lot of things. And then 
you know, when I was 16, 17, started to kind of paint a picture of the broader <laughs> network that there were, there were musicians outside of Colorado. And um, so when I heard My Bloody Valentine, I, I, I understood the, um, the extreme sonic landscape, but it was the combination of that with just the beauty of the chords and the open tuning and the songwriting that was just flooring for me. And I, I really saw a way to combine like yeah radical timbres that are subversive with just beauty um yeah it was important for me still is i still listen to them all the time <laughs> i'm also curious um i know that um you uh, were trained as a singer when you were younger but it also sounds like there was this other kind of parallel development where you're as you're saying you're going to hardcore shows you're going to noise shows and you're playing guitar uh was that always the case these sort of dual interests or or how did that develop yeah i was training as a classical singer from a really early age and um, i went to an art school so um from I guess middle school to high school, I was in I was a vocal major in the art school. But I mean, so I'm, and it was the great thing. It was middle school and high school combined, and all of my friends were always much older than me and not vocal music majors necessarily. So I, yeah, I kind of got a tag along to that was like my gateway into the <laughs> into getting into all these shows. So. Um, it was yeah always in parallel the the interest I would sing Schumann but then go to the Blastomat venue and see some sort of band that was on the Youth Attack label at the time. Uh, I have I have found this to be a rich vein in the past with with some guests. Uh, do you remember were you in were you in bands and can you tell us the name of some of the bands when you were a teenager? Oh my god. <laughs> No, it's too embarrassing. <laughs> That's why it's good. That's why it's good. Oh wow. This is getting so personal. Um uh I well, one one for one month I was in or I was in a band for a couple of months that um I guess it was when I was 15 or 16. Somehow my parents let me go on tour with this traveling like folk punk band um and we like slept on beaches <laughs> up and down the west coast and bought a ba- a van off of Craigslist for i don't know 500 bucks that broke down everywhere and uh yeah that band was called Fiction is Fun and then let's see I um, actually, who really got me into my bloody Valentine and Cocteau Twins was um, my the darkroom attendant at my school, who we started a band together called Dark Russian, which is a bit you know odd right now. <laughs> but that that was a very uh, that was that was like the first time I was using tapes and pedals and. Get, like guitar my voice in really experimental ways working with improvisation and he was quite a bit older than me he was in his 60s and I was a teenager but we were just best friends making tons of weird music in the basement of the lecture center of the school some of the other students would 
crawled down the window wells to listen. <laughs> um, I'm curious, uh, have you ever ended up meeting uh, Kevin Shields or any of the other members in your in your travels? No, but I have the same hairdresser as Deb, which I'm very proud of. His name is Maxime. He's amazing. <laughs> and I really hope to meet Kevin someday. But I, I, I can also let him be a, <laughs> be a mythical figure <laughs> who I first thought was a 30-year-old woman playing power electronics. <laughs> oh, one band that I forgot to mention is Swap Babies, which is a band that, that that's the actual real band that I had after listening to my bloody valentine i started a band called swap babies and we actually released two records and that was like my my teenage dream i'm gonna have a rock band and we did it for a little bit played a few shows it was unbelievably fun yeah and that's not the terrible name you know and and it's starting up again whoa Wow. It started again this summer. Yeah. Is, is that a scoop yeah. for Essential Tremors or is that, you know, because uh, it's news <laughs> to me anyway. It, it's it's news to everybody. Uh, but but uh, I don't know if we'll ever play a show. It just started in a basement again in our studio. And I don't know if it's still called Swap Babies, but it's uh, the embers are are lit. It's it's going to it's going to happen. <laughs> The second song that Malone chose that was crucial to her formation as an artist was Raga Marwa by Kushal Das. was really you asked for pieces that changed your life instantly this piece came to mind and it's um, a rag called Marwa um, from Hindustani music performed by Kushal Das on an instrument called Surbahar which is a bass sitar a friend of mine uh, Adam Grauman who actually was the bass player in Swap Babies. He um, played this for me, and when I heard it, I knew I had to make a lot of life changes. It just opened up so much in my heart and mind. And at the, at the time, I had um, been living in Stockholm for two years. I was 19 and working as a nanny for four children 
full time and I heard this and I I mean I quit my job and went to India went to Varanasi and um found a teacher who would teach me surbahar which isn't an instrument that a lot of women are um allowed to play especially a western woman and he also agreed to teach me marwa which is not a beginner's rag at all it's a rag that maybe you would start learning many years after beginning to learn hindustani music and um so i studied with him there and you know 5 hours a day fingers bleeding <laughs> playing this piece and I, i mean at first he wouldn't um he wouldn't teach it to me or he was very skeptical and but he started playing it and instantly i just was weeping in front of him and like i think he knew like i really needed this or i had some unbelievable connection to this music um and yeah it was quite an experience every yeah it opened up so much um both of the it will of course it's with the tuning but the emotional territory that the tuning can lead you um in in um indian music you have at least 22 different types of tunings which are scales for different rags and and um all of those particular ways of tuning um just bring such a emotive color and life that you don't usually experience and become a way to interpret your experiences and um marwa was a very it's quite a dark piece um there's no fifths in it it centers around the the ma which is the third and the sixth and it's just a very complex gritty harmonic experience and i just wanted to understand it and while i was there um i also was starting to get into just intonation from um my work playing music with uh my friend Ellen Arkbro in Stockholm we um we we had a <laughs> we had another we had a band together it was also had a very funny name called Heshat Skandalen which means horse meat scandal <laughs> um but she was uh, at that at that at that period she, uh, her and her partner Marcus Paul were studying with Lamont Young on and off and she would come back and they would they would uh, teach me a little bit about just intonation and and uh, sometimes we would we would tune in certain ways and um it yeah it really started or i guess it it continued this interest in open tunings that i had and it just started to become much more precise in understanding the mathematical ratios um around around these sounds and so when i was in india I, i also really wanted to learn more about the mathematics and and how how to tune the instruments and my my teacher at the time he he um he wasn't really teaching um teaching me the the ma- the mathematical ratios it was for him is very much of listening and by feeling that you 
tune. And that is something that is culturally learned. Um, but then there was actually another student of his who had uh, from Utah who sat down with me and he was like, oh, you want to you want to know about just intonation? And I think we were I don't know, we were sitting down in a garden somewhere and he took my notebook and wrote all of these ratios and and every all the ratios of Marwa. And uh, I left with that notebook just full of these numbers and mathematic equations that I didn't really understand. And that was that was really the the starting point of me diving diving deep into into tuning and just intonation and fractions. Well, and and you know, my music theory knowledge is eh, but that's been the root of a lot of your work, most of your work since, correct? Yeah, the harmonic, let's see. For me, it just went, I could say that harmony is the root of all of my work, but it also is just kind of a, a spirit or a hue that I, I start with chords. I start with, I start with harmony that feels amazing and then find a structure around it. But I've also, um, since, I've also applied a lot of mathematics to my rhythmical approaches as well with um, using chance base um, operations or creating matrix systems of numbers, different pattern permutations, things that limit my control as a composer. Um, And yeah, I like this idea of kind of creating a riddle or a rule that I have and making a bunch of limitations and then somehow finding a very personal and beautiful expression within those limitations. How long, how long were you in India? I was there for three months. I'm curious what, what was, what was the point at which you sort of made the decision? It's like, I can stay longer and do this more or I can leave and do another thing. And what was that decision point for you? Yeah, well, I was in the while I was there. I was very, I was a very devoted student, and and um, yeah, spending all of my days studying and rehearsing. And um, a lot of chaos <laughs> came into my life while I was there, and threw me far off track and um and i think at that moment i realized that this music to really go into it you have to devote your life to it hindustani music and and um i was so inspired by it and i loved that i loved playing it but i i felt that i would if i was to really honor honor it and respect it i would have to go into this tradition seriously and really give it my all and i knew that i wanted to be a composer and i wanted to i wanted to write my own music and i wanted and i didn't want to use the surbahar as a sample instrument i didn't want to take it outside of its I didn't want to I didn't want to like exploit it like that. I and so I I haven't played it since actually. I made that decision to 
to leave that there. It was, yeah. It, yeah, I, I respect the tradition a lot, and I didn't want to um, extract anything um, from it and put it in a in an experimental Western music context, you know, and um, inspiring, but also painful. It was everything. I'm sure a lot of people have had this experience um, going to a culture with very different um, spiritual guidance than than your own and. Yeah, I, I I really respected it, and I didn't want to. Uh, <laughs> I didn't want to open up the box in an, in a culture. It didn't. It, it wasn't ready. It, it didn't suit. I don't know what I'm really trying to say here. It's, it's this is. I never have talked about this in any interview or anything. It's like this. This whole thing is super personal. Um, and I never wanted. I never spoke about this in an interview because I never wanted it to be part of my narrative of. Western composer goes to India and <laughs> this whole thing because it's it was such a profound and personal and enlightening experience that it it could just be a secret it could just be my my world and that's what this piece is yeah You're listening to Essential Tremors. After the break, we'll hear more about our guests' essential songs. The final piece of music Malone chose as being crucial to her was Kyrie by Josquin Desprez. Okay, so I am at this point 21 or 20, and I'm in my first year um, at the Royal College of Music in Stockholm studying electroacoustic composition, and I have this amazing counterpoint class with a professor named Christopher Eli, and uh, he was He's um, a very like eccentric kind of like mad scientist sort of composer and professor, and I think maybe one of the first uh, one of the first lessons I had with him, he brought out the score of um, a Renaissance composer named Josquin Desprez, who was probably one of the most. Uh, celebrated Renaissance composers of the 16th century. And he brought out the score and said, try to follow along. And when you look at the score, you see it, 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 it just looks like patterns, pattern art. You can, you can see the voices repeating, permutating. 
you can just look at the score and understand the architecture of the music. And he said, just try. So I thought it would, you know, be quite easy. And he plays, I think it's either the Gloria or the Ave Maria piece. And you're listening for, you you, you uh, latch on to an anchor that is one voice. Maybe it's the the tenor. You listen to the tenor. And then suddenly you're lost, even though the music is so rational and fractal and the design of it is extremely coherent and mathematical. Like the attention is just, poof, it, it, it's gone. And then you latch onto another voice that you can follow and you can understand all of the very rational and coherent relationships that each voice has with the other. But at some point it's, it's impossible in the polyphony to actually hold it all in the attention. It's only one voice at a time that is sticking out. And then later he goes on to talk about the what might have been the m- motives for that type of very rational, coherent compositional designs in religious spaces and churches, um, thinking about fractal designs, uh, symmetrical ornaments in churches leading from architecture to stained glass, and also this this type of music, which it creates a true submission to sound. Um, there's something that is so rational that you understand it just on a very basic level, that there is coherency in what you're hearing but at the same time you you can't hold it all at once and you have to submit and I that him (laughs) him putting it in that in that way um at that moment was really exciting for me uh because I had just started making a lot of tests um in my own compositional practice uh with a a software called Pure Data, which is an open source coding software. And I was making this sort of music that was four-part harmony, additive synthesis, and um, each each oscillator had a bank of pitches that were in some just intonation scale that I had chosen. Um, but they were all moving at different points. And... Uh, so some would move every second beat, some would move every fourth beat, some would move every eighth beat, and others would move every 16th beat. So very similar to Renaissance um, and early modern music structure, but I hadn't really even thought of that connection. Uh, it was just a very natural thing to start doing. And uh, when I heard the music, it was like, wow, this just sounds so coherent, but also very really exciting. And I can't necessarily predict the changes, but I know when it happens, it's just right. And so this was really um, the connection that I made with early modern music that basically kind of opened up my whole interest in working with canonical music, working with the pipe organ, working with choir, working with this these to- sort of structures that are very rigid and have lots of rules, but then finding yeah, these these ways to refine and chisel the structure to have a very personal um, 
yeah, message come through. Well, I, I'm I'm also struck by the fact that you're you're in each of these cases you're talking about something where you have a very um, kind of uh, physical, visceral, uh, emotional reaction to um, sound, effectively, instead of having like a like a theoretical um, um, uh, revelation that is, or it, it comes that way first. You hear something or you experience something and it sort of reveals this way forward for you that is, um, or illuminates uh, something that uh, that sort of opens up something for, for your own work. Um, and not that that should be unusual, I guess, but it's just like, uh, it's like maybe that's the way it's supposed to, you know, something whacks you in the head and says, you know, this is amazing. And then you figure out why it's amazing. And it, it, you know, opens up, uh, something, uh, a way for you to, you know, work on creating your own amazing thing. That's what's incredible about music is that it's just so instantly shakes your nerves and can go and immediately into your emotions um whether you want it to or not and that's that's what's also terrifying about it as well is you can't shield yourself from music and sound it it's just gonna it can bring up so much it can take you into such different territories emotional and psychological territories that without your will sometimes and that's what i was really interested about with uh the Josquin Dupre pieces is, I mean, that it can be extremely manipulative, uh, too, <laughs> uh, depending if it's, you know, music used in advertising, music mu- used in religious contexts and political contexts that um, you can so easily pull the strings on, uh, <laughs> on the inner workings of people if you know the right equations. And that's... Um, yeah, forces of good and evil. <laughs> and I, I think being a composer is um, a great responsibility. It, yeah, you have to uh, to treat people with a lot of respect for their time and for their inner psychology because you don't know what's going to happen to them <laughs> after they listen to some of your music. <laughs> This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.